Right after the accident, it's like, cool, I'm in a wheelchair. I have a brain injury. I'm blind in one eye. I'm missing half the skin on my body. What? Who's going to ever hire me or pay me? That story would have derailed everybody. The grief of losing them was a lot, but the guilt of surviving without them. On today's show, we have a multifaceted guest. He's not just a husband and father, but also an entrepreneur, real estate investor, and a true car fanatic. He has a passion for investing, not only in companies, but also in people, with a vision of making the world a better place. What sets him apart is his discipline towards his calling. After almost dying on two separate occasions, he has taken matters into his own hands. His conference, Thrive, Make Money Matter, is an event that's more than just a gathering of entrepreneurs. It's a transformative experience that teaches individuals how to excel in both business and life while contributing positively to the world. With a focus on fostering relationships, providing value to all of those around him, and serving his higher calling, there's no doubt that he will continue to make an impact for many years to come. So without further ado, let's dive into our conversation with my good friend, the remarkable Cole Hatter. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, bro. Uh, so excited to have you. I mean, uh, we've been friends now since I think beginning of 2020. It was, yeah. We're COVID friends. Co- yes. COVID Isn't buddies. That, I lost some friends in COVID. I got some friends That's in COVID. That's right. You're one of the ones I kept. So well, I really appreciate you coming down. You're somebody that I have admired and looked up to as a friend, which doesn't always, isn't always the case, but it's always fun when I, when I get the opportunity to have somebody that I do truly admire. Um, Thanks. I just admire... Most importantly for the audience, I m- admire the person you are more than what you've accomplished. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm what, glad my mother's going to see this and hear that. <laughs> what you do from a hum- humanistic side, from your charity down south and to the idea of Thrive and everything that you've done about helping others, it's always been to grow and inspire people, mm-hmm. make their lives better, and be more than just a self-made individual. And so thank you for coming on. Yeah, man, it's been an honor. And I could repeat a lot of what you just said of similar admiration I have for you of Everbull's an incredible <laughs> success. Super excited to be one of your franchisees. Um, but I was shocked to hear that it's just one of several businesses you've started and that you've successfully had exits in the past and everything else. So excited that our friendship is just budding, <laughs> in my opinion, and that we've got decades of life experience and families, vacations, and things that we're going to be doing together, I'm sure. And fun fact, you're 11 days younger than me. Yeah, just found out an hour ago. This is so me cool. off. So we just had a birthday, didn't yes, we? Yes, we both turned 40. Yeah. I'm supposed to be younger than you, but that's okay. You look great. Thanks. If I look like you, I would love it. <laughs> right on. Um, so yeah, so as I kind of told you off air, you know, the premise of the show is success formula. And I believe success is formulaic. Success isn't an accident. You'd be successful and you've proven it across whatever venture you do because you have these non-negotiables. You have these things that make you you. And I just learned something about you five minutes ago that you've done uh, 75 hard five times. And that demonstrates a level of discipline and commitment and perseverance and mental toughness in and of itself. And the fact that you've been able to do it five times and traveling as much as you do with children as young as you have them, being that you just even had a relatively brand new baby boy. Seven months old. Seven months old. So your sleeping schedule is definitely not on par. No, Um, to say the least. And you run multiple companies. I mean, you are an investor. You are an entrepreneur. You are a speaker. You're a father. So you do so much. How do you really get the 
What, what allows you to have that mental toughness and that commitment to your schedule, the you time that is necessary to achieve something like 75 hard? I think mental fortitude and toughness is a combination of nature and nurture. I think that it's part of how we're raised and the value system that our parents give us and teach us that are important. And so I'll start by giving my mom and dad credit. They are an amazing couple. They're still together, 51 years of marriage, 55 years of togetherness later. That's incredible. Which was a huge foundation of where so much of my success comes from. So if I can digress for just a second, any of the listeners who have children, man, fight for your marriage as best you can because my parents having a solid relationship was the bedrock for so much of where my success has come from. I can tell you that I would not be the man I am today if I didn't have the healthy upbringing that I did. So important to, I guess, share how much we impact our children. So I think that nurture has something to do with it. I think nature does too. I think God gives us gifts and drive and ambition and, and, and certain things that manifest as grit or determination or resilience or mental fortitude that we're talking about right now, mental strength. And I think it's a combination of both, but I also think it's a developed skill. So anybody who's listening to this right now who in a self-evaluation knows that when you're facing challenges, physical or, or mental or emotional, that you oftentimes retreat uh, and, and don't like that discomfort, that this is an area you can grow. Um, and I can explain in, in 75 hard, having done it five times, the mental gains are even better than the physical. You were very complimentary on my physique right now. I just finished 75 hard eight days ago. So I've got abs and everything right now, and we're going to make those last as long as we can off the program now. But that physical transformation is just a small part of the mental and emotional transformation that a program like 75 hard takes you through. And so not that I just want to sit here and be a promoter for that, even though I love Andy Fursell and would promote it with every ounce of my being that anybody out there who wants to try a challenge, go for it. Um, but the results are I am growing mentally, physically, emotionally in, in all areas that matter. And so I think, I guess, the trifecta approach of how to have more mental strength to face life's challenges, both professionally in your business or in your careers and personally in your relationships and in your life, uh, you can't help how you were raised, uh, but that's a part of it. So we who are raising others should keep that in mind. You can't necessarily do a lot with what God gave you. God makes certain people more resilient than others by just to his design for whatever his reasons are, but we can grow it. It is, it is a, I would say it's a perishable skill uh, and it will atrophy, yep. but I think that it's a growable skill, uh, that being mental strength and fortitude. And, and the way that I'm even defining it is how much stress you can manage while still having a quality of life that you enjoy and being productive. Like how much nonsense can I endure while still enjoying it all and having a quality life? I'm vacationing and I'm, I'm a full-time parent and, and I wanna get into some core values too in, in a second, but how, how do I protect my sanity and my quality of life? The whole reason I'm even trying to do what I'm doing, how do I protect all of that while, while still uh, managing to make tens of millions of dollars in business and all of that. And it takes a level of mental strength. And so, again, um, I would encourage people, you can read a lot, but physical challenges, for whatever reason, in my opinion, have the most mental gains. Uh, go do a triathlon. That's before 75 hard. There's one right here in San Diego that I do each year in June, and it's a triathlon. It's a half, so it's half as long as a real one, but it still kicks my butt each year. How long is that? Uh, so it's a one-mile swim. It's a... 50k bike ride so it's like 38 miles or something like that and then a 10k jog instead of a marathon or whatever that's like you say jog yeah yeah <laughs> 10k run um or jog um and so 6.2 miles or something like that so it's a mile swim 38 mile bike ride six mile jog something like that 
Um, and getting ready for that, the training helped me grow mentally. Mm -hmm. So I think I've made the point, but just mental strength, mental fortitude, mental resilient, resilience is important. Um, you can develop it, you can grow it, and you can become more mentally strength if you try. And I think that everybody should make that a point, right? Not, not just measuring your physical attributes and what you look like as a reflection in the mirror, but measuring how you're doing emotionally and mentally, I think matters. And I think that that's something that isn't really talked about a lot in the entrepreneurial space is mental health yep. and caring for it. It's all about like personal growth and development, how to make more money, how to scale, how to have systems, how to KPIs and all that. But no one ever talks about like how to be happy and like how to enjoy yourself. And I think that mental strength has a lot to do with that. And I love that you mentioned that it's a perishable skill because I think so often we see successful humans and we say, oh, they were born that way. But you're a living example of someone who has made tens of and hundreds of millions of dollars and has a beautiful family and businesses success and a ton of great relationships. And you are still working every day on your personal development to get better as a person because yeah. you recognize it is a perishable skill. And that is one of the ingredients that I think has enabled you to stay successful and not just be one of these people who achieve a level of success and then it falls off. Dude, it's, it's the parallel between physical fitness and mental fitness is like perfect. And so I'm going to stick with, with this for a second. It's just like running. And this is an analogy that I think even non-runners can appreciate. But when I first started running with 75 hard, five 75 hards ago, my first was one mile was as far as I could go. And it took me nine minutes and 18 seconds to do it. And that was my best. Like I wanted to get my best time. I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. I thought I was going to die on that freaking job. <laughs> so that was my starting point was 918, uh, nine minutes, 18 seconds to, to run one mile. By the time I was done, I was running a half marathon. I ran 13 miles in uh, an average pace of eight minutes and 15 seconds, right? It only took me an hour and 45 minutes to do it. And so my progress was incredible. Well, then I got off 75 hard. I stopped jogging and I took about six months off of running. And then I decided, you know what? I kind of miss running. I'm going to get back into it. And I was literally almost back to square one, almost back to square one. So running is a perfect example of a perishable skill because you can get really good at it. Running 13 miles without stopping once. I never walked, not for a second. And an average pace of eight minutes and 15 seconds is pretty good for someone that only trained for 75 days, right? Like I, I pulled miles that is off. insane. Yeah, I pulled it off, right? Yes. But then I lost it again because <laughs> I stopped using it. And so I think we, we nailed this one. But uh, it is a perishable skill. Running's a good analogy. And so the question is, how do you continue to grow the skill? And I think that's through mentorship. I think it's through reading, uh, which is in a way mentorship, right? Yep. But personal development. But I think really it's through doing. I think there are just certain things. I can't get biceps by reading how to do curls in a book. I got to pick up the weights. And I think mental strength is something that you just you accomplish by doing it. And so I think people need to put themselves in positions of leadership and of not of discomfort, of not continuing to always put yourself in the most comfortable position, but put yourself in areas that grow because that's where mental strength can be developed. So when you say put yourself in a position of discomfort, and I love that you say that because it's something that I always strive for, which is I have this personal mantra and I say, if I don't, if I don't want to do something, I have to do it. And if I want to do it, great, I want to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's how I push myself when I don't want to. How do you, what do you lean on on those days where you didn't get much sleep because your baby boy kept you up all night. Your wife and you are at night. ends. You have a bunch of meetings and you got to get your exercise in or you got to get your reading in or you got to get your personal you time. Yeah. What do you lean on versus saying, I'll do it tomorrow? So honestly, dude, 
it depends. And if I'm being totally honest, Please. and hopefully everybody is on this show, uh, there are days where I do quit. Like I quit sometimes five times in the same day. <laughs> and I just will tell my wife, I'm freaking sick of this. And I hate real estate and screw this and that. And well, partners, you know, like we, we have some challenging partners that I deal with on occasion. And so I do quit. Um, but I think that I have a big enough why that after I'm done feeling sorry for myself and having a, a temporary pity party, and you and I have had this conversation mm -hmm. before, I know that you have a similar model where you give yourself like a timer, five minutes, five minutes where you're That's allowed right. to bitch, complain and cry. And then when it's over, you got to suck it up and get back to work. I, I sometimes need longer than five <laughs> minutes. Uh, sometimes I need an entire day where I'll just say, screw it. And I, I'm a car guy. I'm a car collector and I'll get in one of my cars and just go drive the coast. You know, we live in beautiful Southern California. Let's enjoy it. It's feels like communism nowadays. So if I don't enjoy the ocean, I'm <laughs> what am I? Why am I even here? But bo bottom line is I'll get in my cars and, and I will quit. But because I have a big enough why and a big enough reason that the money matters because it's a for purpose business, each of my companies don't just make money, they make impact. And that impact matters to me. We talked a little bit at the beginning of this episode, you were very complimentary of kind of my philanthropic endeavors. Uh, I have a big enough why that after feeling sorry for myself for maybe a whole day, don't quite get back on my feet in five minutes. Uh, I, I come back to my business because I know that it's a, a necessary vehicle for me to accomplish the work that God has given me. And uh, and I know that is being a successful business owner, running my four purpose businesses and making the impact in the world that each of my companies do. And so I think that that's just it. I've got a bigger calling. I don't just want money. And I have, I have materialistic tendencies. I like nice things. I want to dress comfortable. I want to take fabulous vacations. I got home 72 hours ago from Cabo for my birthday, mm -hmm. spent seven days down there on yachts and fishing trips and excursions and all kinds of fun stuff. So I enjoy the monetary things too. But honestly, I don't think I enjoy them enough for the hard days. As much as I love having an entire fleet of cars in my garages. And you do. You have, what, nine? Yeah. And as much as I, think I your Viper is my favorite. My Viper? That or that Hummer. Uh, yeah, the Hummer. The Hummer's a beast. The Hummer's the a Viper beast. tries to kill you every time you drive it. We'll go for <laughs> we'll go for a ride. Yeah. Uh, but as much as I enjoy those cars, and as much as I love trips, like I just got back from Cabo, and as much as I enjoy those things, I know myself enough to know that those things don't motivate me to to keep me going through the hard times. And this could be a really valuable lesson to some of the listeners is if your why right now is just getting rich, you got a chip on your shoulder, you were judged in high school, they said you'd go nowhere and now you're making a little bit of money and you just got this monetary chip, just dealing with all the nonsense that business can bring you for only making money usually isn't enough. When you find fantastically successful people, they're usually hell-bent for a bigger reason and their business is the vehicle to solve whatever that bigger reason is. And I think that that's the key to be able to get through days where you feel like quitting, there needs to be something that's so much bigger that you almost feel ridiculous for having quit temporarily. But I, people ask me that all the time. Cole, how do you stay motivated? And the answer is I don't stay motivated. I have to motivate myself daily. And there are easy ways to do that. I look at my children. I look at my wife. You know, I'm in a season right now, very blessed, where she doesn't work. She, she works 24-7, 365 on the children. And with a newborn, that's a lot. She does more than I do. Um, but she doesn't have to make money right now. So I have the financial responsibility and that's a motivating factor too. And I've got overhead. I've got employees, same as you. I can't take my foot off the gas because it could cost them a career. So there are motivating factors within the business itself. But what really drives me is that underlying why. And so when you were identifying that why, because since I've known you, it's always been about make money matter. Mm -hmm. that's and I why. love that. I, I love when I made my first million dollars in my life and I thought I was going to be the happiest guy. And I didn't get fulfilled to what you just said. It took me years to realize, years later to realize I had to have something bigger than monetary. Otherwise, it's just not, it doesn't fill the cup. It doesn't make you feel that. 
your whole concept of make money matter, it's not a new concept, but the way you quantify it, the way you say it and articulate it, puts it all in perspective. Because I have seen what you do with your events. I've been fortunate to be a speaker at a couple of your events. I've been fortunate to come and meet your group Mm -hmm. and see how they are now taking that message, using their business as a vehicle and making their money matter Mm -hmm. to have impact in the world. You also have, uh, uh, what do you, it's in Mexico. An orphanage. An orphanage. Thank you. I was struggling to find the word. An orphanage um, that you go to regularly. Usually I get to see you on your way south when you're going to or from your orphanage. Yep. So I know the human you are, and you're down there actually making an impact on these children's lives. How did you pick that as your as your purpose, as your cause? Which part, the Make Money Matter or the orphanage the specifically? The orphanage specifically. So in 2008, we had a recession, and uh, I was a real estate investor at the time. The real estate market crashed. Most people listening to this might remember that. Some of the younger gen, whatever gen they're called, X, Z, Y, whatever, might not remember because they were in elementary school, but I got my ass kicked pretty good. And uh, when I had lost almost everything and I was down to like my last thousands of dollars, uh, I decided to temporarily step out of business and go become a missionary full-time. True story. And so my dad was my business partner at the time in my real estate business. I had started a couple of businesses and shut those down because they were failing miserably, went to my dad and said, you can have my half of the company and make all the money by yourself while I'm gone, which was laughable because we weren't making money. And I moved to Mexico and I lived there full time. Where in Mexico? uh, Ensenada, Mexico. It's two hours south of the San Diego border. And I lived there and I became a staff member on a nonprofit called YWAM, Youth with a Mission. It's a Christian nonprofit organization that's a global nonprofit. They have bases all around the world. And I joined the base in Ensenada where my job was to build houses for homeless families. So these very poor Mexican families that live in these colonias, which are the poor parts of Ensenada, uh, they've got a qualification process that they can qualify for where this nonprofit then builds them a home. They need to own land, obviously, for the home to go on and some certain things. They have to have at least one child under the age of eight. And again, there are certain factors because everybody in Ensenada in these colonias needs a new house. And so that's what I did, bro. I was just down there building houses for homeless families. And one day I was asked to go and build a um, a stage. So what was that thing that we're always standing on? I had to go build a stage at a church. And so instead of building a house, me and my construction crew for this nonprofit went out there. And I met this couple and this stage in this little chapel that we were building, uh, this couple ran a ministry for women who were addicts who were recovering. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. You guys like help women recover through alcohol or drug addiction. And I noticed that some of these women were moms and the kids were there. And I'm like, well, what happens to the kids while the moms are going through the program? And then they were just kind of like, you know, they hang out, they play soccer and they just wait for mom to get better. I was like, oh, this sucks. Let's do something for these kids. So without taking you through the play by play, I ended up helping them secure some more land and and, uh, starting an actual orphanage where I was like, let's start an orphanage and let's take these kids whose moms are going through the recovery process and foster them at the orphanage. Let's have real orphans at the orphan. So we've got a mixture of either true orphans that are waiting to be adopted or uh, kids that we're fostering there while they're waiting for mom to get healthy. And let's let's put some money into this and let's do this. And they agreed and we did. And so I spent what I had left on that orphanage to get it started and had 11 kids at the time that I was taking care of. I would bring them groceries every other day and I ran out of money. And that was where Make Money Matter was born. And we can get into that in just a second. Um, But I didn't find that orphanage. It found me. And so finding this couple, Rebecca and Marcos, who still live there and still run it to this day, um, was the beginning of it for me. 
seeing that need, identifying that there were these displaced kids that needed a place to live and having the entrepreneurial drive of being able to see the vision of like, you guys need an orphanage and these kids can't just wait for mom to get better. They should be in school. And so we, we built the orphanage and we, we now have 30 kids there. And uh, well, that's kind of our peak is we'll, we'll range anywhere from 20 to 30 kids and they all go to school and they all have health care and they all are taken care of and they're all fed and they're not hungry and it's amazing. And and we've turned it now into an actual 501c3 called makemoneymatter.org um, is, is our nonprofit. And we're just down there taking care of these kids. And so how Make Money Matter was born was I ran out of money. Remember, I, my businesses were failing and I took like my last 20000 of my name, which might sound, depending on the listener, $20,000 is a lot of money. Well, when I was in my peak, it wasn't. And so that when that was all I had left, it was like I had lost everything. So I moved down to Mexico with that 20 grand and was living off of it. And then again, started this orphanage and ran out. And so I needed to come back to America, start a nonprofit and ask wealthy individuals like you to support me. This is what I was thinking in 2011 is, is now where we are in my timeline. And so I'm like, man, I, I've got these amazing kids. I can't afford to take care of them anymore. I'm in over my head because I can't just shut this thing down. So I need to go to America and raise money. But the entrepreneur in me, remember, I had been making money in real estate prior to that. I didn't feel good just asking people to just charitably give. I wanted to sell them something or provide a service or, or do something. Well, coincidentally, at the exact same time, Tom's Shoes was taken off. You heard of Tom's? Of course. For any of the listeners don't know what Tom's Shoes is, for every pair of shoes they sold, they gave a pair away. That's how they launched. They've changed their model since. But they were getting all of this PR, and they were everywhere I looked, and people were wearing them, and they were becoming so popular so quickly and I was obsessed with that business model. And I said, this guy, Blake Mikowski, figured it out. He didn't start a nonprofit. He didn't go ask people to donate. He started a for-profit business that has a charitable aspect. So it's not just a traditional for-profit, but it's not a nonprofit because he's getting rich. It's something in between, which I've since coined and trademarked for-purpose business. He started a for-purpose business. And I was like, this is brilliant. This is what I want. This is what I need. I'm going to go back to America, run businesses, which I'm comfortable with, make millions of dollars, and have them give back to fund my orphanage. And that's where it started. And so uh, I was like, I'm going to make money, but I'm not going to make it like I used to. I'm going to make money matter. And I remember the first time I ever said it, I was explaining it to my mom at a competitor. I was at Nectar. <laughs> True story. And I Damn just you, got, Nectar. No, good for you, Nectar. I don't even think uh, this was 2015. You didn't even six, exist. Yeah, you didn't even exist yet. But so I didn't have a choice. We lifestyle even then. I didn't I, have I a choice. You. Thank you, bro. So I'm getting a green juice with my mom, and I'm explaining to her that I'm now back from being a missionary, but I'm still going to be a missionary, but different. I'm going to be in the business field making millions of dollars to fund the missionary field. I'm not going to be a missionary in the field. I'm going to live in America and fund that thing that I thought I was going to be a part of when I lived in Mexico. And I was drinking a green <laughs> juice, I swear to God, at Nectar. It's so funny. Um, and uh, All and things start with what you fuel your body with. Look at that brilliance. I've told this story so many times, and I always say I was having a green juice with my mom, but now it matters because they're a competitor of ours now. Uh, but so bottom line is I said, I'm going to make money matter. So I started four purpose businesses. And, and the concept again is like Tom's shoes. He didn't get rich and just write checks to charity. His business model was philanthropic for mm -hmm. every pair of shoes he sold. He gave a pair away. Of course, he baked the cost of that into the first pair that you were purchasing, but it was brilliant. I loved it. And I did it. And that's where Thrive was then born because people like you that were in my friendship circle saw how I was running my businesses and were inspired by it because entrepreneurs are thirsty for meaning and for significance in their lives. They don't want to just be money manufacturers anymore. They want to feel alive by doing their businesses and by connecting your business to a cause, you can feel alive in ways otherwise you couldn't. And so 
that's where Thrive was born. And I started telling people how to make money matter. I'm like, hey, listen, just take your business model, find a charity, a cause, a need, some something that you can contribute towards that matters to you. For everybody, it's different. And run businesses that fund those initiatives. And so I do it myself by running my businesses that fund my orphanage. Um, but we have other causes that we support too outside of my orphanage as well. And, uh, and that's what make money matter means. Don't just make money, make it matter because while your businesses are generating revenue, they're giving back simultaneously. And to your point, I didn't invent this. There are a bunch of businesses that are doing this. I was just at a Starbucks the other day and I saw it caught my eye. It says this bar saves lives. So I picked it up. We should start selling those at Everbowl. And I looked at it and I read the back and I don't remember, but it said something specifically, each bar sold provides a meal to a kid in, in a third world country. And I was like, hell yeah, this is rat. So when you're looking for it, you see these companies mm -hmm. all over the place that are just sprouting out on their own because they're philanthropic entrepreneurs that want to run businesses that make a change in the freaking world, right? And so these are just passionate entrepreneurs that like don't have a community to plug into or any guidance. And I want to be that guy. And that's what my whole community and my whole movement and God-given calling on my life is, is to talk to as many entrepreneurs as I can about taking their traditional businesses and converting them to for-purpose businesses to make their money matter as well. Because why do we even need charities if all the businesses are solving the world's problems? Right now, businesses give money to charities, charities go and solve problems, but they have terrible economic models because they need that support. What if the businesses that had the money just solved all the problems? And that's, that's the world that I want to live in. Hey, everybody. Looking for great insights? Entrepreneur.com's podcast network is the place for you. Check out podcasts like Problem Solvers and Smart Passive Income for smart advice. Hear true stories on how success happens, financial updates on dirty money, deep dives with Behind the Review, and food trends on restaurant influencers. And don't miss my new show. It's all at entrepreneur.com forward slash listen. Let's start our success journey today. Hey there, it's your host, Jeff Fenster, and I have something very exciting to share with you today. You know, here on The Jeff Fenster Show, we're all about growth, both personally and professionally. Speaking of growth, have you ever heard of Everbowl? As the proud founder of Everbowl, I can tell you firsthand that we're on a mission to help everyone unevolve, to live actively and eat stuff that's been around forever. Imagine stepping back into a world where everything you eat is fresh, nourishing, and packed with nutrients. At Everbowl, we've got you covered with our wide range of superfood bowls. But it's not just about the food. It's about a community of like-minded individuals who are determined to embrace a vibrant, fulfilling lifestyle. Join us on this journey as we redefine what it means to be healthy and active. So if you're ready to unevolve and be the best version of yourself, head over to everbowl.com and check out our menu. Well... There's a lot there, yeah. but I want to go back to one thing. When you went down to Mexico with your last 20 grand yeah. to be a missionary, did you have an end game or was it, I'm just tapping out and going down there? Yeah, I was tapping out. Uh, my business had beat me up. My yep. girlfriend that I was dating at the time broke up with me on Cinco de Mayo, which is just un-American to dump somebody on a Mexican holiday, right? <laughs> it's just messed up. Um, but uh, so she broke up with me at the time, which by the way, I love telling the story. That's now my wife. So the girl that <laughs> dumped me, I didn't let her leave. I ended up getting her back and marrying her. And now we have three beautiful and I love children. Sanja, so. Yeah, Sonia's the, she's, she's my better half for sure. Um, I don't even remember the question. Oh, yeah. So the, the last 20000 that I took down there, the end goal was that I would just be a full-time missionary. So I was going to use my 20000 until I ran out. Yeah. So my sister was on staff with a different nonprofit called Campus Crusade, and they um, raised money. So I was familiar with, like, you spend a year asking you to give me 100 bucks a month. And I get enough people to say yes, and now I'm making five, six grand a month, and I can go live as a missionary. And you feel good because you're like, yeah, I give 100 bucks to Cole, and he's out there like 
taking care of the homeless. So I can feel good about that. And so that's the missionary economic model is you go and raise support through your local church and community to try to get people to donate to you monthly so that you can live and be a full-time missionary. So I was like, dude, I'm going to use my 20 grand until it runs out and I'm going to go raise support. I'm going to be a full-time missionary. And it was when the 20,000 ran out that I needed to go raise support that I was inspired instead to start non or excuse me, start for for purpose businesses making money matter instead. <laughs> And, um, and that's what I did. So the end game was to just be a missionary for the rest of my life. I was over business. I was over life. I was, I was unplugged. That was a long pity party. Yeah, that one was. Um, but uh, it wasn't a pity party because I was inspired. And it, and you it all, got inspired. Yeah, to go be a missionary. And, it, dude, it's what built my whole – so that missionary experience is what created mm -hmm. the Make Money Matter movement. I, I wouldn't be who I am without Mexico. So you almost died yeah. at some point. Was that in Mexico? Nope, that was earlier. Well, was yeah, I almost died a couple of times in Mexico, but that's a different story for a different podcast. Because when you were telling me the story about you almost, I mean, you got thrown out of yeah, a that car was earlier. at 80 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. That was before Mexico? Yep. Okay. Yeah, so that was 2004. I'm a 21-year-old kid. Um, let me back up even more to 19. When I graduated high school, I went and started working with a fire department. In, in high school, I did evening and weekend classes at a local junior college so that by the time I had graduated from high school, I had done all my prerequisites and I was ready to go into my fire academy to then go and work for a department. And so by 19 years old, I had my whole life figured out. I would spend my next 30, 35 years at that department. Uh, to get my full retirement, full benefits, and I would be in my late 40s, early 50s, just chilling, right? So so that was my, my plan. Pension. Yeah, pension, exactly. Benefits, the whole deal. And then I, I knew, too, with the flexibility firefighters had in their schedule that I would end up starting a business at some point, that firefighting would be my bread and butter, but I'd start something on the side. And that was my plan. And two years into that plan, I did get in the car accident. My two best friends and I were leaving Orange County, California, driving out to Las Vegas, Nevada. I was in the back seat. My buddy Steve was driving. My other best friend, Matt, was in the passenger seat, and I was in the back. And uh, we got into a rollover car accident where I got ejected going about 80 miles an hour on the freeway in, in the middle of the desert. Um, and I got really, really hurt, as you can imagine, getting thrown out of a car at 80 miles an hour. Were you seat, were you buckled? I was seat belted. Yes. Uh, that's the first question everyone asks. And what ended up happening was we flipped front, not sideways, but bumper over bumper, end over end. And, uh, your seatbelt stops you from frontal impact. The seat itself is the only thing holding you from going backwards. Well, in the chaos of the accident, the seat of the car itself broke, laid flat. And I shot out the back window with my seatbelt still buckled. My legs just slid out from underneath the lap belt. The chest part didn't matter because I was going backwards. Does that make oh, sense? Oh, wow. So yes. as the car was flipping, my own body weight broke the seat flat, and I just shot out the back window like where you would load groceries. It was a, a SUV, a Toyota 4Runner. And so um, the, black, the back bench just laid flat. I shot out the back. Crazy, right? Yes. So they had to shut the freeway down in both directions because they had to land a helicopter to rush me to the hospital. I was, I was bleeding out of my eyes, my ears, my nose. I had a traumatic brain injury. My brain was bleeding inside your skull. If you have an internal bleed in your body, your skin is is elastic, so you're, you'll swell. And have you ever broken a bone or anything? Yep. You have a swell. Well, your skull can't swell. It's fused shut, right? It's like seven bones that are all fused. So when you have intracranial pressure like I did, it just comes out your eyes, your ears, your nose, just any any escape it can. And so they knew that I wasn't doing well. Um, and so they had to shut the freeway down, flew me to the hospital. And I had other injuries too. I had a, a spinal contusion, so I couldn't walk. I was temporarily paralyzed from the waist down and um, wasn't supposed to survive. Obviously, you know, I did. Spoiler alert, here <laughs> right. I am. Uh, but uh, it took me about a year to learn how to walk again and to fully recover. And that's what took me to entrepreneurship is 
immediately after that car accident, I was so hurt. I had to move into my mom and dad's house. I couldn't feed myself. Like, bro, I was completely incapacitated. I had to be carried to the toilet and like picked back up and carried to the couch when I was done. Um, and so had to leave firefighting, had to move back in with mom and dad. And it was in that season that I found entrepreneurship where I was like, well, I don't know what my recovery is going to be. I was blind in one eye for a while, took about six months to get my vision back. But right after the accident, it's like, cool, I'm in a wheelchair. I have a brain injury. I'm blind in one eye. I'm missing half the skin on my body. What, who's going to ever hire me or pay me? I need to figure out how to make money all by myself. Like I need to figure out how to provide for myself. And so that was where the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey began was sitting on my parents' couch in a wheelchair, or I guess sitting in a wheelchair, <laughs> uh, trying to figure out you know, how to provide for myself. And as I surveyed the, the wealthy individuals I had around me, which was like my parents' friend and some family members, it seemed like real estate was the common denominator. Even if they were a doctor that made their money in medicine, they like bought the building that their medical practice operated out of. And I saw this common denominator where it's like, man, Rich people all do real estate. They either just do real estate or they do something else and put all their money in real estate. So if I want to get rich, I need to do what rich people do. I'm going to do real estate. And that was the beginning of my real estate business was right after the accident. So we told the story a little out of time. That's okay. But 2004 was my car accident. It's like the movie Crash. We'll just jump around. Yeah, we'll go backwards. Uh, so 2004 was my car accident. 2005 was when I started my business. 2010 was when I moved to Mexico. So I had a four and a half year run of running my company profitably, successfully. And then the recession killed me in 2009. Did your two best friends survive? Uh, no. Uh, so in that car accident, I lost Steve. He was the driver. He was also ejected out of the car. Um, he was also flown in the helicopter. He was also in the same operating room with me. Uh, but uh, you know, it was his time. It wasn't mine. And so I ended up losing Steve in that accident. And it really screwed me up. I not only had crazy grief from losing Steve, but I had the guilt of surviving when he did mm -hmm. And so that was tough. And Matt understood my pain because he too survived in that accident. So it was Steve driving, Matt in the passenger seat, me in the back seat. Matt and I were the only survivors and we lost Steve. And we had this galvanizing, I don't know how you would explain it, but, but going through that experience with Matt made us closer because we just lost somebody together and knew a hundred percent what the other person was going through in a way where everyone else who was around us was like, we're so sorry for your loss. We loved Steve too, but, but they, they weren't in the car. They didn't know what it felt like to be the only survivors. Right. So Matt and I became inseparable. 66 days later, I had gotten out of a wheelchair and onto crutches and Matt wanted to celebrate that breakthrough by going dirt bike riding. That was something that we loved to do. And I was like, you're crazy, bro. I can't, I'm, I'm hurt. And he's like, no, no, no. You sit in a wheelchair. You sit on a motorcycle. This is perfect. Let's go ride dirt bikes. So Long story short, after he convinced me, I said, yes, he loaded the bikes. We went out to the desert and he and I were putting around real slow and uh, he was in front of me. I was behind him and we were on our last ride to, to load the bikes up and to go home. And he climbed this little hill and disappeared across the top because when you're at the bottom of the hill looking up, you only see the crest. You don't know what's on the top. I then 30 seconds behind him got to the top of the hill and there was no top. It was just a huge hole. It was a 20 foot by 10 foot wide hole and I fell into it. And as I was falling into it, I grabbed onto a bush, literally about the size of this microphone, like a basketball, just and held onto it and was staring straight down into blackness. And I couldn't see the bottom. And so I was able to kind of grab that bush, climb out, hold onto the edge of the hole by my armpits and kind of roll out of the hole. 
get up, start looking for Matt, assuming that he had gone around the hole and continued on. Long story short, couldn't find him. So I called 911 thinking that he had fallen in this hole. And this thing could be like 30 feet deep. I couldn't even see the bottom. He could be down there with a broken arm, broken leg. It's pitch black. You cannot see the bottom. And so I was like, dude, I need to hurry up and call 911 because he would be down there bleeding and I need to hurry up and get down there and help this guy. So called 911, figured out how to explain to them where in the middle of the desert I was, and they arrive, um, set everything up. It took seven hours. Finally, the police chaplain said, I need to speak to the family. So the police chaplain pulled us away from all the chaos, and he said that this is an abandoned mine shaft, that this hole right here, a company came in, dug out a bunch of silver, and just left the hole. And he said, unfortunately, in the California deserts, there are tens of thousands abandoned mine shafts. There's no law that requires them to put any fence around it or cover it. And so he said, unfortunately, we have people that fall in mine shafts a lot. And he said, sadly, that this was the deepest mine shaft he had ever seen. It was 780 feet deep. The reason that it took so long to find Matt is he had fallen all the way to the bottom and he didn't survive. And bro, I lost it. So September 9th, Cole, Steve, and Matt get in a car accident where we lose Steve. November 18th, excuse me, November 14th, Cole, Matt go down a mine shaft and Matt doesn't survive. And, and if you s- don't catch yourself on a on that bush. We would have just been missing people. Yeah. Our parents would have a day or two later been like, why didn't they come home? They would have found Matt's truck at our campsite and they would have never found us because my bike fell in and Matt with his bike fell in, uh, my dirt bike. So I climbed out without it, but have we fall, there was no evidence. They would have, we would have been missing people to this day. My parents would have never known what happened to us. They would wow. have thought we were abducted and kidnapped or something. I don't know. Um, but so in a, in a 66 day period, I lost my two best friends in accidents that I was in. So the grief of losing them was, was a lot, but the guilt of surviving without them was soul crushing. And that was a part of my why is um, I, had, I had a really ugly season immediately following those accidents where I was a victim for a while. I was just like, God, how could you let this happen? How could Steve die? How could Matt die? Why is my whole life screwed up? Why did I lose firefighting? Why am I living with my parents? Like just why, 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 why? And then I realized that being a victim doesn't give me any power and it certainly doesn't honor Steve or Matt's life. So I decided instead of victimhood that I would use my tragedies to fuel me for motivation. And I made a promise to Steve and Matt that I would live a big enough life for the three of us. They, we were all 21 when that happened, all of us. So I've now lived 19 years longer than they were given. And, um, I told Steve and Matt one day, I just looked up and started talking to them. I said, I'm going to do things in my life. I never thought I could, or would have ever tried before. I'm not going to go back to firefight. I'm going to find something else and do something bigger and push myself further than ever. So that when I get to see them again in heaven, cause I'll be face to face with them again. And I'm face to face with my creator. I'll be able to put back, I'll be able to get <laughs> some emotional, but I'll be able to point back in my life and say, I used every talent, every moment, every opportunity, every gift, every relationship I was given God, I used everything to the best of my ability. And I did it all for Steve and Matt. And hopefully by the time that I do get to see them again, face to face, there'll be millions of lives that have been changed through my work that I'll be able to share that credit with Steve and Matt. Mm. And so back to your question 20 minutes ago of, of what happens on days I feel like quitting. I remember that I made a promise to two guys that didn't get a chance to live. And no matter if it's a stupid business partner who's acting like a dickhead who needs to be outed from the company or whatever it is that's frustrating me at the time, uh, I realized that I made a promise to two people who didn't get to live another day, who they would give anything to live my worst day. When yeah. my business is frustrating me or, or life, you know, if my wife and I are having a hard time or wh- whatever it is, if I'm facing a challenge, I remember that the fact that I'm even facing a challenge is a gift. 
And this is so cliche, right? Like every day is a, is a gift and that's why they call it the present and all that. I, I get that, but like I almost died. And so I, I there's a reality to that cliche. Twice. Yeah, twice, exactly. There's a reality to that cliche that I live now where, where it means something to me about time. And so I don't have time to feel sorry for myself more than a day at a time because I have a lot of work to do because my life has to count enough for three people. So I've known you for a handful of years and I never knew that part of your story. Yeah, dude. Yeah. I, I almost want to just come give you a hug because it just inspires me more about you, honestly. And I'm not saying that just to blow smoke because you've known me long Thanks, enough. Man. I don't blow smoke for the sake of it. But that story would have derailed everybody. Yeah. If, if I had to go through what you went through and I lost my two best friends and almost died in two, two accidents and lost my career and was at home in a wheelchair, I don't know how I would have rebounded from that. And to see how you've taken what is the worst moments of your life and turned them into the fuel for the best moments of your life and created a bigger why. I mean, that's what everyone has to understand. We all, no one's lucky. Yeah. We are all unlucky and lucky the same. It's what we do after that. It's what we do with that that dictates our outcomes. Totally. Because you could stop your story right there, and you're one of the most unlucky humans I know. Totally, yeah. Right. I mean, right there. Mm-hmm. If you just end at 22 years old, I'd be like, this poor man. Like, yeah. your story's horrific. Dude, I've been blessed more than most, and I've lost more than most. Um, but I think it's just because I have a crazy calling on my life, and I think we all do. And we all have our own unique stories of things that God will allow us to go through or not to mold us into the work that he has prepared for us. And, um, you know, I I don't know that I would have picked my life story because that was 20. You're right. That was all by 22. By my 30th birthday, bro, I've got more stories just like it. (laughs) People who know my 20s by my 30th birthday are like, you need to write a book or a movie. And it's like, finally now at 40, I will. Yes. Um, Which I'm excited for. Yeah. It's going to be these stories and the lessons learned living through them to share with people so that you don't have to go through what I did to learn what I've learned. And it's important, I think, because there's a meme that travels to Instagram and the internet. I've seen it a handful of times, but it usually shows like a poor family in some third world country. And it's like, this family would do anything for your problems. Mm -hmm. And for most of us, that's true. Obviously not the problems you went through because those are life changing and, and unfortunately people passed away. But our worst days traditionally that we get home and we're stressed and we're just like, ah, oh, why am I so unlucky? And we feel like a victim because a business partner is being whatever, an employee, a customer. We didn't get the job we wanted. Things didn't go our way. We got cut from the team. Like whatever those little things are that are big in the moment but trivial in the big scope of life. Yeah. For us to all take a step back and realize we have it so good being an American in this country, having these opportunities, yeah. having the ability to rebuild your entire life from scratch, being in a capitalistic society where – you can reinvent yourself with the, with the snap of a finger. Mm-hmm. You can turn tragedy into triumph. You can turn a failed business in 2008 because of a recession that had nothing to do with you individually and unluckiness into a multi-million dollar for-purpose empire. As an entrepreneur, I know how meaningful it is to invest in the people and causes that are close to me. And on GoFundMe, it's easy, safe, and powerful to do just that. Whether you're supporting a family member, friend, local business, or charity. And whenever you make a donation, you're protected by the GoFundMe giving guarantee. Visit GoFundMe.com today to help make a positive difference in your community. Hey, fitness fans, ready to crush your fitness goals? Make your move to EOS Fitness, where becoming a member starts at just $9.99 a month. 
Gyms are open 24-7 and packed with the latest gym equipment to keep your workouts fresh. What are you waiting for? Give them a call, drop by, or hit up jefffenster.com forward slash EOS to join. EOS Fitness, better gym, better price. Now, let's get after those goals. Yeah. And impact millions. I like the way that sounds. I mean, you did it. I know. That's why when I got the opportunity to come and speak on your stages at Thrive, your audience, your community, they're one of my favorite communities. And we talked Thanks, about it man. off air, but I let some of them use my studio just because I love them. Yeah. I genuinely love your community because they're all for-purpose entrepreneurs. Say, as soon as you get a group of people that want to use their businesses to make the world a better place, they're a good group to hang out with. Because sometimes, I mean, you're, you're a speaker too. You travel, you go on stage, you, you speak, you get hit up after by 20, 30, 40, 50 people. Everyone wants to talk to you. It's tiring. Mm -hmm. You go home and you're kind of spent. Yeah. Your events, you go home and you feel inspired yeah. as a speaker. Like, I love, and that's why part of me was sad you, when, you, when you stopped doing the events short term. Yeah. I know I'm waiting for Thrive, Re Thrive Revive. Yeah, I'm going to bring it back. Yeah. Yeah, we had a great seven-year run. Uh, it's been amazing. I have no regrets, uh, but, uh, you know, it's been talking a lot about God's calling on my life. I just know that this is a season where I needed to step out of the public spotlight for a moment to build some things that really matter to me to then relaunch bigger and better than ever. It's not a step back. It's a sidestep. Um, I, you know, as I shared with you, I don't do podcasts anymore except for great friends. I don't speak on stages anymore except for great friends. Um, I'm just working on my real estate business and working on my, my fatherhood. I, I've got young children, 10, seven, and seven months, hmm. 10 years, seven years, seven months. And so, uh, he'll actually be eight months in a couple of days, but, uh, my kids are obsessed with me right now. And even though I will have my children the rest of my life, I won't be as cool as I am right now. Like my 10 year old still kisses me in public. This is not going to last long. <laughs> and so I'm just in this season where I've listened to my elders enough and heeded their advice that I'm not going to have regrets on my fathering my young children. I will not have regrets. There will not be a 60th birthday where I say, man, while my kids were young, I wish I worked harder and made an extra million each year. I can maybe give up one or $2 million a year and still make plenty of millions to pay my bills. Uh, but that extra one or two million that would cost me sacrificing what my kids need and require from me right now. So anyway, long story short, I, I've temporarily stepped out. I'm tripling down on my real estate business. I'm going to write my book that's half written right now and got a literary agent and a publisher and all this stuff. And I'm finding out in the world of book publishing that you don't really get to write your own book anymore. There's a lot of opinions, but I'm, I'm heeding that advice as well because they're experts and they know how to create hooks and tell my story in a way that keeps people flipping the pages. So at the beginning of that, and I think that uh, I'll be in a quiet season for a year or two, write that book, get it out there, publish it, launch it, and then with that would be my like rebrand, re-entering the public space, launch a podcast that goes with the book, back on stages, and, and then that whole season. But right now, I'm loving it, dude. It was, it's been great, and I have no regrets, um, but uh, the season I'm in right now is totally fulfilling me. Well, before I ask you about real estate, I want to tell you my favorite story about your, your daughters. Okay. This was, I don't, know if you, I don't know if you remember this, but this must have been two years ago. And your wife posted on Instagram a picture of her coming home and your daughter set up with her own toys in her playroom, a uh, fake Everbowl yes. with the sign at the top and she was playhousing Everbowl. Mm -hmm. And that moment of all the Everbowl moments, and we've had a lot of highs and lows and all these great moments, that's one of my top three favorite Everbowl that's moments cool. that kids were inspired with their imagination to build a fake Everbowl in their playroom and serve Everbowl like they would a tea shop or a uh, ice cream store. The listeners need to know, they built an Everbowl. It was like 10 foot by 5 foot. There was a countertop. There was a sign that was like 6 feet long that said Everbowl. Like this wasn't 
make believe. They yes. built a, a like a kiosk for Everbowl uh, and had fake ice cream that they would serve that came from some Target gift. I'm sure. And uh, they loved it. So I'm glad that meant something to you, man, because they... They meant more to me than you'll ever know. It was one of my favorite... Like, we could sell this for a billion dollars, and that story is still going to be one of my top five. Because money and adults are fine, but when you can light up a child... Yeah. I mean, children have the greatest imagination. Mm -hmm. And your kids have a... I mean, your your home is beautiful. They have toys. They have pools. Like, they built an Everbowl. Yeah. They wanted to be part of this thing, which means we're doing something awesome. Yep. And so that, I just want to tell you that. But pivoting to real estate, because this is something you said it at the beginning of the episode, all, and I've learned this just from being around people like yourself over the last 10, 15 years, all successful people I know are involved in real estate. All the wealthiest people I know are involved in real estate. I've never been a really good real estate investor. I've dabbled poorly. Um, I end up buying houses that don't make me money because for some reason I buy them and I, I don't rent them out. I don't know what I'm doing. I majored in real estate. I tried, bought my first house in 2007 and the recession hit me as well. So I just realized like, okay, I'm going to focus on my for-purpose businesses for myself, my for-profit businesses for myself and real estate on the side. Lately, I've been dabbling. And so entering this new period we're in where real estate has surged in value over the last three years, interest rates have surged from free money to now what we, you know, maybe not historically high, but high interest rates for us over the last decade. Yeah. What is the opportunity you see today? So there's a lot. This is probably the most exciting time that I've seen in real estate for a long time. Right now, the news and the general attitude towards real estate is sour because of interest rates. Like you said, we've just had consistent increases of interest rates that have harmed uh, the, the lending world and therefore impacted the real estate ecosystem quite a bit. Uh, but where there's disruption, there's opportunity. Where there's chaos, there's opportunity. You know, what I always tell people is if you can create a disruptive brand, then usually you can get a disproportionately large amount of market share and be super successful. You've got the Airbnbs that was disruptive in the hospitality space. You've got the Ubers that was disruptive in the transportation space. You've got all these disruptive brands, right? Well, starting a disruptive brand is hard to do because not only do you need a good idea, you need a good idea that's like, has to do with timing and and certain factors that are outside of your control too, right? To have that disruptive brand. Well, in a season where your industry is being disrupted, then every brand automatically gets to be a disruptive (laughs) brand. So right now in real estate, things are so chaotic and there's so much uncertainty that that's where the opportunity comes. And so we're at the very beginning of some of the best deals, I think, that are going to be coming out. Um, You can talk big money, like institutionally wise. A lot of these banks like hedge funds bought a bunch of real estate like strip centers and apartment buildings and hotels at low interest rates on arms, adjustable rate mortgages. And as those rates are now adjusting in today's new rates uh, being double what they were when these banks got these loans, they literally have to dump assets and cheap. This is Grant Cardone's whole strategy right now is he's just going up and buying up all these massive A-class buildings from these REITs and these hedge funds who got good financing when we were running the country like we should be. And in today's economy and the interest rates where they are today, those assets no longer make sense to them. So they're dumping them for cheap and guys like Grant Cardone are coming up and picking them up. So where there's disruption, there's opportunities is the point Um, in all sectors of real estate. In the residential part, we're seeing the exact same thing. 
Uh, what's interesting right now and why home prices are holding is because people don't want to sell because they know they're going to get rid of their 3% mortgage to then go get a 6% mortgage somewhere else. So even homeowners that would be trading or upgrading or getting a new house aren't right now. And so we're seeing that slowdown. What I think is going to happen, like everything else, is people will adjust. And so people will get used to the interest rates. And we might even have that come back down. The, the Fed has said that they may have one or two more increases, then they're going to hold for a while, and then they're going to start peeling back a little bit because they've seen that that you know we still have high inflation, but interest rates can't keep going as aggressively as they were at 50 basis points and 75 basis points a pop. That can't happen anymore. And I'm getting a little bit in the weeds right now. No, but, but it's good. But Because I know, think we have some listeners that are looking to get involved. They yeah. want to capitalize on this, but they're like me, unsure how. So I'll go through the weeds and then I'll go back high level and make it easy so everyone can benefit from this. But you've got homeowners that are reluctant to sell because they're they're going to upgrade a home, sure, but they're going to triple their monthly mortgage because they're going to get a new interest rate, which is much higher than the one they've already got. But I think as people start to settle in, once the Fed's done raising rates, once they hold and even start bringing them back down, people will get used to it. Just like we have in business, uh, our, our costs have been going up at Everbull because of shipping costs and supply chain disruption from post-COVID and all the stuff that we've seen. So we've had to adjust our economics accordingly. And then our customers had to adjust. And everybody has to adjust in, in an economy like this. The same thing happens in real estate to where people will get over it and they're going to buy anyway. They're not going to die in the house that they're living in right now. They're going to start selling again. And in that season, I think we're going to see a lot of discounted real estate. So what I'm doing personally right now is stacking cash. I've, tra I've transitioned my strategy within real estate right now to focus on a, a specific strategy called land entitlement, which would take 20 minutes to explain in, in full. But basically what I'm doing is I'm buying raw land that's zoned like agricult agricultural or residential, and I'm changing it so that a commercial or industrial property can be built there. So all I'm doing is working with the various municipalities and saying, hey, there's this four acres of dirt that's zoned agricultural. We're going to spend the next year changing that so that it can be a strip center, so that we can put Everbowls and Starbucks and things like that in. And it takes about a year of paperwork and legal process and court hearings and things like that, but you can eventually get it done. Well, what that does is it doubles the value of the land. So I have a deal right now that I bought in April 8th of last year. So exactly a year ago. Oh, it's April 8th. April 8th. Right on. Well, April 8th, happy birthday to you. I bought myself 4.2 acres to you. for $4.2 million in a place called Bloomington, California. Okay. So it's in the Inland Empire, maybe an hour's drive from where we're sitting recording this podcast. I bought it for $4.2 million. I spent 300 grand in titling it of my own money. So I'm into it for four point, probably all in six and change, 4.6. I sold it for 9.5. It's under contract right now. I did nothing to it, bro. I didn't even pull the weeds because I just got a letter from the city for asking me to do a weed abatement. So truly, <laughs> I didn't even pull weeds. I did nothing. I bought a, bought 4.2 acres for 4.2 million. I then rezoned it from general commercial to industrial. It took me a year to do. We then just sold it to someone who's going to build a warehouse and it's cold storage, someone that we might be buying <laughs> our produce from. And he's bought it for 9.5. This isn't theoretical. It's under contract. Now, it hasn't closed yet. In real estate, nothing counts till the ink's dry and the money's in the bank. But I just got to wait for him to go through his due diligence process. And if it's not him, it'll be somebody else. We listed it at $10 million. He, he offered 9.5, and I accepted because he was going to close in 60 days. And there were some delays that came up, but it's fine. So that's my new strategy. Now I'm going to make $4.7 million net on that deal. After everybody gets paid, after everybody's won, there will be an extra $4.7 million sitting in my checking account from just that deal. And this has nothing to do with any of my other businesses. What I'm going to do with that is reinvest it into real estate. 
I'm going to take all of it and I'm going to go buy asset classes that other asset managers are dropping for cheap or homeowners are dumping for cheap. And it's and you're in the same boat in your own world of Everbull and, and having influxes of cash and then reallocating it. And so I think uh, now getting out of the weeds and going more high level, I think that in the next year or two, we're going to see a lot of real discounted real estate. So people should be getting themselves ready financially to capitalize on that opportunity. This is not get rich quick. This is buy a cheap asset in 2024 that makes you rich in 2030. Yep. That's what this is. But it's going to be a transfer of wealth like we've never seen before. And we as a nation are becoming a renter's nation. And so I would encourage anybody who's a homeowner right now, don't sell your house unless you're buying another one because eventually real estate will be so unaffordable that it's just the wealthy that have it. If you look at the data, less and less people can afford home. The, the uh, home price index, what is it? The affordability index is low. It should be double digits and it's not. It's single digits in most parts of the country, meaning that of that local area, the, the affordability index, less than 10% of people can even afford to buy a home. And it's only getting worse, that trend. So there will be a day in America where just nobody owns homes anymore, except for people like you and I that were smart and bought them and held onto them, rented them, and got wealthy over time. And so that's my play is I'm doing land entitlement to generate a bunch of cash to get as liquid as possible. I'm not buying and holding like I know you're closing on two or three rentals right now. That's not what I'm doing. I'm keeping all my cash and I'm waiting because I'm going to be able to get those two or three rentals for another 20% off in two or three years. So my last two quick questions. When you buy a rental... What's your formula? How much does it have to cash flow day one for you to pull the trigger? It's more percentages. It's not necessarily dollars, uh, but I like double digit returns. So I'm shooting for a 10% passive cash on cash return. So if you buy a house for a hundred grand, you want to make 10 grand in rental income profit after all expenses year one. Which is possible, um, but it's fewer and further between. Yeah. Usually you're going to see like seven or 8% returns yep. on just any random deal, but uh, getting 10% or more on passive income is not that complicated to do. So that would be kind of my minimum. Um, because if not, Jeff, I've got other things to do with my money. I, I can just lend my money out at 10%. So if my real estate isn't going to give me 10%, then why bother? Now, real estate has other benefits like tax depreciation, things like that, and, and tax sheltering. But the reality is my real estate needs to be giving me 10% because at the end of the day, I'm a private lender. I lend people money for their real estate every single month and I charge them 10 to 12%. And that's, that's the money that I stick away. So like when I make this 4.7 million, I'm going to wait for two years before I redeploy it into real estate. It's all going to go into loans. So I'm going to take my $4.7 million I'm making on that land flip. I'm going to loan out $4.7 million at 10 to 12% interest on one or two-year notes. Then it's all going to come back to me, and then I'm going to go buy an apartment building from Goldman Sachs, uh, who needs to get rid of it, you know, and it's too small. Grant Cardone didn't want it or something like that, right? <laughs> uh, so, so anyway, that's the point, is it needs to make about a 10% return because I know – if I'm going to go buy a house that's paying me 7%, I would have been better off just loaning my money out. Sure. So my last question, because we have an audience of, of aspiring and entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs, um, middle of the road entrepreneurs, even successful entrepreneurs. So they want to get involved in real estate, but they don't have $4.2 million or 4.6 4. to put all their money in on a land oh, yeah. entitlement deal. Yeah. Um, they don't have all the, the means and the resources, but they want to get involved. They want to start in the real estate journey. What's the one thing you would say they could do today with, let's just say they have a hundred grand or less. They're going to hate this answer, but it's the right answer. You got to get educated because guess what? Of the $4.6 million I put into that land deal, only 300,000 of it was mine. And as of yesterday, it's not anymore because I just raised 500,000 for that deal to get it the rest of the way through. So the reality is 
I, I won't bore your audience with the details, but I got what's called seller financing on the land. I bought it for $4.2 million, and I only needed to bring a million to the table. The guy carried $3.2 million for me, right, at 5% interest last year when interest rates were rising. That other million plus that I had to bring to the table, I raised through our mutual friends. I won't say their name on the air, but you know every <laughs> single person that gave me money for that deal. Sure. I only put 300000 of my own dollars in. I should in. have given you money for that deal. Yeah, I would have, I would have paid you. I think I'm paying 15% on that deal. Uh, and But I just raised the last 300000 because I wanted my money out. So, so long story short is you don't even need your own money. You do need money to make money in real estate, but it doesn't have to be your own money. And this is all totally legal. Real estate, everybody understands you borrow money for real estate. Well, you borrow money to buy it too, right? And so long story short, where people should start is knowledge. It's education. I don't make millions of dollars in real estate every single year because I don't know what I'm doing. The reason that I'm successful in real estate is because I know exactly what I'm doing. And the reason I know exactly what I'm doing is because I've been doing it for 17 years now, but also I've had great mentorship along the way. I've read books. I've gone to seminars. I've gone to workshops. I've joined masterminds. I've put in the work and I've spent the money. I've spent $500,000 on my brain. Probably 480000 of that was in the last four or five years because that's the next question is, Cole, you've spent half a million dollars on your personal growth and education. What if someone doesn't have a half a million? Well, neither did I when I started. That was once I started making money, I would join wealthier or more expensive things. But the reality is I've spent a half a million dollars on my education. I don't have a degree. I didn't finish college. You heard my story. I was a firefighter and then went right into real estate. So I never ended up finishing my four-year degree, but I have knowledge. I have an education. I spent a half a million dollars on it and 17 years using it to get where I'm at. And so I guess the point I'm trying to emphasize is success isn't free. It, it, you have to pay rent and it's due every day. And if you want to be a successful person, it looks like mentorship and constant, constant growth. I saw in your office, you have like 60 books in there. You're reading. I know you're mentored by mutual friends of ours, like Meltzer and others. And so you are a phenomenal success because you put in the work and success is only rented and the rent is due every single day. Success is an atrophying <laughs> skill, if you, if you will. Um, and so anyway, back to real estate. And this is true of all industries, by the way. If you want to be a successful e-commerce person or it doesn't matter what the industry is, it all starts with your knowledge. But, but that would be where I would start. And then the next question is, well, where do people begin? Man, there's, there's a couple of reputable companies out there. Um, but the reality is I would start with Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. That's like the staple book that almost every entrepreneur that does real estate reads. And so start with some books to even figure out what part of real estate you're even interested in because there's a thousand different ways to make money in real estate, literally. Figure out where you even want to make money and then go obsess over that thing um, and, and get great at it. That thing, that, that strategy within real estate. Cole, I could sit here for hours I know. Just I kind of want to keep going. Right? I know. I love. I love it, and that's why we've hung out for so much. I'm actually going to be with you this weekend, speaking yep. at an event on stage with you. So yep. I'm excited about that. Yeah. Um, we're going to be hanging out. I'm going to pick your brain some more about real estate and get involved in your next deals because I need to learn and be obsessed and get involved and understand that this is such a vehicle for wealth generation and creation. So I can then turn that into a for-purpose initiative that fills my cup up. So I have a cap table of everyone who's given me money. And then I have a list of everyone I've always wanted to reach out to. And you know, you're at the top of that list and I've just never reached out to you because well, we've never had this conversation. So I'm glad we have this podcast because the next time I do a deal, I'm going to call you I'm in. and get you in on it. And you heard it on this, on this podcast. I'm in on his next deal because I want to be part of that. I want to utilize. If you don't know how to do something, partner with someone who does. Yep. Our next deal is probably 60 days out or so, but but yeah, um, and this is a real example because this is actually going to happen. This is not staged yeah. of me about to do my next deal and once again, not needing any of my own money to do it. Um, I'm going to have my own money in the deal because you got to have skin in the game. But 
wouldn't need to if I didn't want to. You just raise it. And that all comes with knowledge and experience. So I think that uh, anybody who wants to do real estate can. The entry of barrier, the barrier of entry to get started is your knowledge. And if you want to get involved and you don't know where or how, reach out to Cole. He's doing deals all the time. How should they hit you up? Uh, Really, I'm active on Instagram only. Um, So that's just at Cole Hatter. Um, I don't really post or do much. This is my season of yes. stepping out of social space, but I do respond, respond to, to my DMs. DMs. Yeah, and, and I have Andrew who who helps me with that. So I'm pretty good at DMs on Insta. Um, it's just Cole Hatter, my name. No letters, numbers, underscores, dots, just Cole Hatter. You can lead a horse to water, but you got to step and take that drink. So if you want to get involved in real estate and you're not sure how, you can follow me and be part of his next deal or just reach out and learn because this man truly does care. He does reach out and respond. He does educate. He has groups. He's not just someone who does it on his own and and hoards the knowledge. He's a giver. He is a for-purpose individual. He's someone I've always looked up to and I'm proud to call a friend. And dude, thank you for actually coming on the show. I know you're not doing podcasts. And when I reached out, you said yes. And so thank you. Of course, man. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Love your studio. Congrats on your success. Can't wait to subscribe and listen, man. You've already had amazing guests on the show. I'm excited to sit in the same spot, guys. (laughs) who our legends have sat in. Well, thank you. Hey everyone. First, I wanna thank all of you for tuning in. And if you guys haven't heard about my new book, Relationship Bank Account, click the link in the show notes or search the title on Amazon. This book is packed with all my secrets to success in both relationships and life. Make sure to pick up a copy and if the book helps you on your journey, let us know by leaving a review. I appreciate all of you and can't wait to see you on the next one.